Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. Thank you all for uh, joining us. I know we had two weeks off just because of the way the holidays fell. Um, we hopefully you were, for those who do celebrate, hopefully you are able to celebrate uh, uh, Christmas and all of its festivities and, of course, the other celebrations during that time from Kwanzaa to a variety of other holy holidays that did come up. And then, of course, we rang in the new year, and I know we're all ready to turn a new year. Uh, in regards to so many uh, things, but of course, hoping to see an end to this pandemic. And one of the ways uh, uh, we may be likely to achieve that, we'll have our amazing guest today speak about it in regards to the vaccines. Right? One of those outlets that we thought would help us, if we can't come up with a cure, can we at least achieve immunity? That way we can prevent transmission and or disease from SARS-CoV-2. So you guys are in for a treat. I'm so excited many of you are here already. It should be a lot of fun. But with that said, let's take a step back and remind ourselves why we are on these calls, why we are here to listen in. And the most important thing to recognize, and it's something I've been stressing so much every time we are on these calls together, is that your frontline staff are those who can promote health and prevent disease. And with that notion in mind, not going to be doctors and nurses. It's going to be you all, community members, community leaders, sisters, brothers, aunts and uncles, and grandparents and so forth. You all can be taking this information that we have and disseminate it out to your household, to your neighborhood, to your community, and so forth, helping spread proper information that is needed now more than ever to end this pandemic, from following through with hygienic interventions that we've emphasized physical distancing, hand hygiene, and face masks, to now getting an understanding of what the vaccine means, right? What is the technology? How did we get here? And so forth. To be comfortable with it in order to move forward with this with this outcome. So thank you all for being here. It means a lot. I know Kimberly and I, when we get our coffee during the week, we always emphasize this is one of our biggest highlights of the week um, So and for 2020. So you all have made that possible with that said, bringing in our first community call for 2021 around the pandemic, let's go over where the numbers are. And actually after that, not, no update from Dr. G today. The reason being is I want to leave a lot of time for the vaccine conversation. We will have uh, typical updates next week. Uh, that way we can, uh, Kimberly and I can go over a variety of just other thoughts and questions around the pandemic. But for today, for today, Let's just go ahead and go over the numbers and then dive right into our guest. Globally, where are we? Globally, there are 88,689,609 cases with a mortality of 1,910,118, giving us a global mortality rate of 2.2%. Here in the United States, we have 22,152,595 cases and I imagine many of you saw the headline this week that we passed 350,000 deaths. And we have. The mortality right now is 374,391, giving us a mortality rate of 
And here in the state of Maryland, probably sometime next week, we will cross the 300,000 COVID-19 mark. Right now we have 299,606 cases since the pandemic started and mortality of 6,047, giving us a mortality rate of 2%. So the pandemic is still here. We are all understanding that there has been a massive surge over the uh, month of December. I I think one of our calls, you guys heard me actively being in the intensive care unit uh, for uh, managing patients with COVID. And then during the holiday break, I was in working as well. So it is, yes, the surges you are here are palpable within the confines of a hospital wall. However, science, you know, an outcome of Man and woman, right, it's an, it's, it's, these are outcomes done by the ingenuity and intellect of human beings. We have a way to end this. And so the vaccine conversation is important, one that not only to understand how we got here, but to feel comfortable as well, to make the decision with insight of capacity. Kimberly, I'm going to turn it over to you now to introduce our amazing guest, someone who I've gotten to know over the last few months and you know, always joke, and maybe we'll come to fruition, that we should do kind of a duo, or maybe a trio. We'll keep Kimberly as well, of course, of course, um, to do a trio kind of podcast. So, Kimberly, over to you to introduce our guest today. Thank you, Dr. G. So, yes, I'd like to introduce everyone to Dr. Namanjay Bumpus, who, again, is the Director of the Department of Pharmacology and Molecular Sciences at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. So, welcome, Dr. Bumpus. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks. Um, I'm really glad to be here and get to discuss um, the COVID vaccines. So just a little brief introduction into me. Um, I am a scientist. I've been at Hopkins for 11 years. My research lab focuses on development of drugs for infectious diseases. We've primarily focused on HIV, but now we actually are working on some things related um, to COVID as well. And I also lead the Department of Pharmacology and Molecular Science at Hopkins, which really is a major contributor to drug discovery and development efforts um, across the institution. Great. Thank you for that introduction. It's always helpful to know who we're talking with on the other line. And um, so I want to always start with the basics. What exactly is a vaccine, and how does it prevent us from contracting an illness or disease? So a vaccine is really a substance, a biological preparation um, that basically works by teaching our immune systems how to recognize and to fight disease-causing agents, such as a virus, um, in the case what we're talking about here. And this then protects you from getting sick if and when you're exposed to the virus. So the vaccines that are currently authorized um, for this coronavirus are use actually a kind of a different technology than we're used to. So I'll talk just briefly about that. So basically these vaccines use the genetic instructions, which here is the mRNA for these two vaccines. So this is basically mRNA is what our bodies read to make proteins. It's the genetic instructions to make proteins. So essentially these vaccines contain a little bit of this mRNA. And in this case, the protein that this genetic instruction tells us to make is the spike protein of the coronavirus. So the coronavirus spike protein is what gives the virus its shape, and it's also the protein that the virus uses to bind to human cells and to invade them. So when you get these genetic instructions, it's a little bit, the virus genetic instructions for making that spike protein, 
your cells, when you get the vaccine, can then make little bits of that spike protein and start to mount an immune response against it. So this is not the full virus. It's not anything that would make you sick. It's just bits of this protein, basically, that you'll make. The genetic instructions are degraded. Your cells get rid of them. But when it makes that protein, you start to get immune response towards that spike protein. And then your body is ready for if it actually sees the real thing. So if you're then exposed to the actual virus, your body's ready. It can mount response to spike protein. And, you know, as I mentioned, since the spike protein helps the virus get into cells and invade them, it's really a good target then for our bodies to be acting against. So that's really how these vaccines specifically are working and what they're doing. Great. Thank you. So most of us have heard about the vaccines available um, to prevent the spread of COVID-19, Moderna and Pfizer. Can you explain the difference between the two? Yeah, so they're actually very similar. Um, there are some others that are quite different coming um, kind of down the pipeline. But the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are very similar. They both use that technology I just explained, the genetic instructions for the spike protein. Um, there are some differences as far as the dosing. So they both require two doses. Um, with the Pfizer vaccine, it's two doses that are three weeks apart. With Moderna, it's four weeks apart. They're similarly effective, um, both 94 to 95% effective. So actually, they have many similarities, um, just with a small difference in that dosing schedule that I mentioned. So um, what happens if you only take the first dose and not the second dose? Is it still as effective or? Yeah, so not as effective. Um, so you may have seen in the news there are some suggestions in the UK, for instance, they're saying, you know, maybe we can spread things out, give one dose. The recommendation in the U.S. is really to stick with the scientific data that we have, which is based on the two doses. And so that um, level of efficacy that we talked about, the 94 to 95 percent, that's really after two doses. So people should, you know, plan and definitely um, be uh, diligent about getting both of those doses um, when they get vaccinated. There, you know, may be some protective effects from one dose. There are some data that suggest there could be some protection, but we really need people to get the, you know, the efficacy to get that really great effect from these viruses that are um, kind of effective at a very unprecedented level. So we want people need to get both doses, certainly. We just don't have the data or evidence to suggest one dose at this point. Understood. Thank you. So what are some of the uh, reported side effects that um, you might experience? after getting the vaccine? Yeah, so the side effects are a lot of what you would expect. So a common side effect is pain at the injection site. Um, there also were reports of mostly mild um, headache, fatigue, and chills. Um, this is a little more common after the second dose, but these were mostly mild to moderate and are you know, side effects that really make sense with your body is working to mount this immune response. Um, so definitely not anything out of the ordinary for these vaccines, not any side effects that are, you know, specific to the approach that was used to make these vaccines. These are really um, expected side effects, as I mentioned, mostly mild. I apologize. Oh, Kimberly, yes. Look, before you jump into that, if I can give just a personal take, um, and, and I, I completely agree, uh, but uh, I, I, uh, I just wanted to provide a personal testimony. Uh, I just received my second vaccine uh, earlier this week. Um, 
what is today? Friday. I received it Wednesday. That was my second of the Pfizer vaccine. I got it three weeks after the first dose. Um, and to the, our listeners, my first dose actually incredibly well tolerated. Um, a little bit of arm soreness, that's it. Second dose, again, a little bit of arm soreness, but I would say about 24 hours later, I did have a little bit of chills. Nothing that would that stopped me from my everyday um, activities and so forth, but it was noticeable. I wore a sweatshirt even to, to go to bed. But otherwise, I, I would say it was, uh, was well-tolerated, but any discomfort definitely came after the second uh, shot, but uh, one that was, again, it was noticeable. It was a bit of a discomfort, but it was not one that uh, kept me from doing my daily activities and so forth. So just wanted to provide a personal testimony to that. Thanks for that, Dr. G. Yeah, that's, that's very common, um, definitely, and as you mentioned, especially after the second dose. But like we just heard from Dr. G, most people report it being mild, not something that, you know, stopped them from going on about their daily routine. Thank you, for, uh, thank you Dr. G, for sharing that. We appreciate your um, transparency. And, and Dr. Bumpus, I, I apologize, I'm a, a little off script here, but, you know, I, I've heard some questions from community folks about, um, you know, individuals with underlying conditions or that are pregnant, are you aware of any um, complications or um, any reason why those individuals would not want to get the vaccine? So, no. I mean, as far as the testing that's been done so far, I mean, it's the efficacy has been shown across um, populations. And also, um, we haven't seen any side effects that seem specific to one group or another. Um, right now, really the only um, contraindications coming from at least the CDC are related to people with certain um, allergies. So, for instance, if you have an allergic reaction to polyethylene glycol, <clears throat> sorry, or polysorbate, um, you know, then this they're saying, you know, you should not get this vaccine because um, because it contains um, one of those ingredients. So there are some allergies, not food allergies and things like that. There are some very specific um, kind of chemical allergies that folks should discuss with their doctors. And if you have any hesitance, I think definitely discussing with your doctor should be what you do, and Dr. G can talk about that. Um, but otherwise, we don't see any reason why, you know, particular populations um, would have certain side effects or shouldn't be vaccinated. Thank you, Dr. Bumpus. And, you know, I know um, between the two vaccines, I believe one is um, 18 and over, perhaps the other is 16 and over. Um, why isn't there a vaccine available um, for children and adolescents younger than that? Yeah, so the um, Pfizer vaccine is for 16 and up, as you mentioned, and the Moderna is for 18 and up. And really, it just comes down to clinical studies and the time that it takes. So we need to have clinical studies done in you know, younger folks, the pediatric population to really show um, efficacy and also safety. So there are studies now ongoing for the Pfizer vaccine in people as young as 12. Um, as far as I know, out of, uh, you know, over 100 people that have, um, children that have received it, there haven't been any adverse events or anything like that as far as, you know, what's been reported that I've seen. So I think that it is moving along. Um, but it just takes some time. We need to make sure that the dosing's right. We need to make sure that it's going to be beneficial. This was, as we know, a really unprecedented effort moved, you know, really efficiently um, and so the focus was adults primarily and now I think it is moving to younger people and so once now that we're going 12 and up, you know, after that it'll be, you know, probably 10 and 11 and kind of working backwards from there. So the idea is to get this 
you know, um, so that there's a vaccine for people of all ages. It'll just take some time. So I know, you know, our governor has been trying to, to keep us updated on when the vaccines will be available. And, um, you know, I'll certainly refer a website where people can keep track on that. But, um, and we'll discuss that a little bit further with Dr. G. But do you know when the general population is able to get the vaccines, will they be given a choice of Moderna or Pfizer? Yeah, so most likely it's going to be based on availability. So I would say that um, folks shouldn't expect to have a choice at this point. It looks like it really is going to come to, it comes down to availability. But what I will say is that both of these vaccines are very safe and similarly effective, very highly effective. So you should feel confident in either, really. Um, but I think it's going to come down to availability. You know, by spring, there likely will be some other options as well, and so we'll see how that rollout goes. Um, but as far as these two vaccines, they're very similar, um, and I think that we can be equally confident in either of them. Thank you. So, big question, can we still get the virus after we've been vaccinated? Yeah, <laughs> so that's kind of a million-dollar question. Um, so the World Health Organization says, and I think that people agree, that basically based on the data, we actually haven't really established whether the COVID-19 vaccines prevent people from getting the virus and passing it to others. So we know from the studies, highly effective as far as preventing getting COVID-19. Um, in the Pfizer study, you know, when they did see an infection, it was not um, severe. No one that got the vaccine had a severe case but we really don't know that piece yet about preventing getting the virus and passing it to others. The idea would be, you know, hopefully not, and that hopefully if you do get infected, you know, because you have this immune response, your levels would be so low, you wouldn't pass it to others, but we really need more time to know that for sure and to collect more data. So this is something that we'll learn as more people are vaccinated. And to kind of um, go along with that, once people do become vaccinated, Will we still need to wear a mask, social distance, wash your hands as we have been doing for the past year? Yes. So a lot of it is for the reason that, um, that I just mentioned. So since we just don't really know about the correlation between getting vaccinated and then the ability to still have some exposure and pass on to others, we certainly need to maintain our entire toolkit which includes, you know, all the wearing the mask, social distancing, washing hands. Um, in addition, Rolling those things back eventually is also going to depend on not only, you know, how well these vaccines work, but also how many people become vaccinated, get vaccinated. So we'll have to look at that and I think really start to monitor what community spread looks like before we can even think about, um, you know, rolling back any of these. So for now, we have to remain diligent about the wearing masks, social distancing, washing hands, all of those things. We have to keep really our whole toolkit going. Um, to try to, you know, really eliminate the pandemic. So the vaccine is not going to stop that for now, but, you know, down the road we'll see, you know, how that changes. So I just got um, an email with, uh, from a community member, two um, interesting questions um, that I think kind of go along with this. And one is, are there any benefits to the public being knowledgeable or aware of the ingredients in the vaccine? I think... Um, I think so. I think potentially. So there are ways to, um, you know, get some of that information, but I do think that there's um, utility there. As I mentioned, things like the fact that there's a polysorbate, and if you have a 
um, an allergy, then it, you would not want to take this vaccine. So I think that there is, um, you know, potentially some use there. I think that one thing people can do if they are concerned about ingredients can talk to their doctor. There's nothing, you know, there that's associated with any types of toxicities or adverse effects and even some of the other things that people have worried about with vaccines like preservatives, these vaccines actually don't have any preservatives. So um, I don't think that there are a lot of things to worry about, but particularly from the standpoint of if you're concerned about allergies, I think that you can talk to your doctor certainly about the ingredients from that standpoint. Great. Thank you for that. Um, and also, and I'm sorry, this lost it. So um, as far as we know, do you think this vaccine is going to have to be taken annually like the flu vaccine? We don't know yet. So we don't know how long um, the immunity will last. Um, you know, it could be for some shorter time period where we have to, like the flu vaccine, get vaccinated or get boosters over some period of time like we do with, you know, other types of vaccinations we receive. Right now, we don't know. A lot of that will come, you know, as we look at the data and kind of see, you know, what's happening as far as people being vaccinated and, you know, what community transmission looks like. You know, there's a, a lot of talk on um, particularly social media about the different mutations of the virus. Will the new vaccines protect us from all the different strains? Yes, yeah, so from everything we know, um, they will. Many of the strains that's actually been tested in the lab and certainly um, does with the new mutation that people are talking about a lot that, you know, sound in the UK and now it's here in the US also, there's high confidence that the vaccine will work there too. These strains are, you know, essentially 99% similar to the viruses themselves, to the, you know, virus sequence that we started out with, the virus we originally identified. So they're not much different, and they seem to be really similar as far as that spike protein, which is, you know, what we're targeting with the vaccine. So as far as the vaccines that we have, they should be equally effective against all of the strains um, that we're seeing in the community. And my last question um, um, pertaining to this particular part of our call is, do you feel there's been enough um, evidence, um, clinical trials to prove the effectiveness of the vaccine that is safe for minority populations? I think so. Um, so as a, you know, I'm a black woman working in science who actually focuses quite a bit of effort on thinking about diversification of clinical trials, diversification of the samples that we look at from a drug development and um, discovery perspective. And is actually very heartened by the data released. And in these studies, I think that, you know, there certainly is, was, I think, pressure from the healthcare industry to make sure that these were diverse trials. And I think that as trials go, they did very well. So in the Pfizer study, for instance, we had 10% of the people that were enrolled in the study of the, you know, about 43, 44,000 were African Americans, 4% um, were Asian, 26% identified as Hispanic Latino. Um, for the Moderna study, we had about 20% identifying um, Latinx, 10% African American, again, 5% Asian, 1% Native American. These numbers, you know, are really, really good compared to many trials. You know, drugs that we take now that are safe and effective, but were done in studies where maybe only 3% of the people were, you know, African American or Latinx. So the numbers that they've reported, these studies were done with a significant amount of people um, 
from, you know, backgrounds that are normally underrepresented in trials. They were enrolled in these studies. They did not see there were no differences in efficacy or toxicity. So I feel, um, I said, very heartened, actually very heartened and very um, good about these vaccines that they have been tested across diverse populations. And Dr. G got his. I'm looking forward to being able um, to get mine. But I think that they've done um, pretty good due diligence here um, or extraordinary compared to um, kind of what the status quo is. Great. Thank you. And there's actually one more question I want to address um, with you from a community member. Um, will there be contact tracing on individuals who have re received the vaccine? Yes, I think that Dr. G um, may be able to talk about that. Um, as far as I know, I mean, certainly, I think there will be, you know, follow-up trying to understand if people become infected, were you vaccinated? Um, but as far as contact tracing, I haven't seen that as something mentioned as, you know, what will be practiced. But I think that it certainly will be a question so that we can start to understand, as I mentioned before, can you really, you know, transmit the virus if you've been vaccinated? Yeah, no, uh, that's a great question from the community. And to some extent, it sounds like that will be a question added to the contact tracing in order to, to conquer that one question um, uh, that was posed earlier. If you get the vaccine, will you, uh, will you, are you still at risk of getting um, SARS-CoV-2? So my insight as well is that for contact tracing purposes, there will be a question being asked if an individual got the vaccine. So for instance, if I'm tested positive next week for COVID and during my contact tracing questionnaire, they will ask me if I've received the vaccine. So I would say yes. This is a hypothetical, by the way. Um, I'm not positive for COVID, just saying if I do, um, I'll have to answer if I got the vaccine. So, yes, it sounds like contact tracing will take that into account. I agree, yes. Yeah. So question, because we have to get the data. We have to know, you know, about people's ability to become infected or transmit if they've been vaccinated. But I don't think there will be any automatic you know, kind of tracking or tracing once you get vaccinated, but I think that it will become certainly part of questionnaires so we can get those data. I, I also want to just mention to our listeners, as you guys are sending these questions in to Kimberly and I, it is so important that, you know, assuming the questions you're about to have or have, um, as you're hearing us, science isn't there yet with the answers. It doesn't mean that we're not pursuing them. A lot of them, like with this question in mind, a lot of them we're pursuing in real time just because that's unfortunately sometimes how science is. Um, this reminds me a lot of, you know, March of 2020 when so many great questions were coming up about SARS-CoV-2 where the virus was just three months old or several months old at that point, and we didn't know. So whenever we don't know, it is always going to be important for us to say that, maintain that level of transparency, but also hopefully provide that comfort saying, but it is something we are pursuing. Science does that constantly where questions arise long before the answers get there. Um, and in a time of a pandemic where we're still learning about the virus, and we while we have this great vaccine technology, we know so much. There's so many things, um, as you heard, we don't know if it will have to be annual. Uh, we don't know if it will stop immediate transmission and so forth. So great questions. We are, we will be looking into it. Not, not us per se, but others, I promise you, intellectually are looking into this. So more to come as we move forward. And um, hopefully to our listeners, we'll be able to provide these answers in real time 
uh, as we learn, especially from other experts, and we'll be inviting them back in and so forth. But great questions, and again, ask away, and if Dr. Bumpus or I don't have the answers, immediately one comfort hopefully you can take away is we're looking into it. We are definitely looking into it. So uh, sorry about that. Kimberly, back to you, my friend. Thank you, Dr. G, and uh, thank you, Dr. Bumpus. Um, this has been amazing so far. I really appreciate all the insight that you have shared with us. And um, as uh, many of the callers on the line know that we did have a session on Monday to briefly discuss um, the vaccination plan, and they were a, a ton of questions that you had submitted, and we are going to try our best to answer them within the next 20 minutes um, between Dr. Bumpus and Dr. G. So bear with me. Um, there's a lot of questions here trying to avoid the ones we've already addressed. Um, so between Dr. Bumpus and Dr. G, if you just want to chime in, um, um, wh whoever's best to answer. So the first one, um, regarding the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, um, uh, this community member says it has a projected delivery of preliminary results at the end of January 2021. If Johnson & Johnson delivers preliminary results, what is the projected time frame to request emergency FDA approval? And is there any benefit to getting the, J the Johnson & Johnson vaccine over the other two vaccines? So I think the current thought and hope is that um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, if it remains, you know, the studies on track, could actually get emergency authorization sometime in February, maybe even mid-February. So it definitely seems to be moving along and it's coming down the pipeline. The AstraZeneca vaccine is looking in the U.S. probably more like April. So there are those coming. Um, both of those vaccines work a little bit differently um, with the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca. Instead of, you know, kind of, like I said, the mRNA to make the spike protein, this actually puts genetic material from the coronavirus into another type of virus, um, an adenovirus that's not infective, though, and that's how it's delivered. So it's delivered through kind of a non-infective virus, which is a little more um, close to kind of traditional. But anyway, um, the hope is the Johnson & Johnson data will reveal that it can be effective with just one shot. So we have to wait and see how all the data bear out, but there may be a one-shot um, vaccine coming, and it could be the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Great. Thank you for that. Um, and for Maryland, do we know if all two or potentially three vaccines would be available in this state? And if so, would the second dose, if it requires a second dose of a vaccine, would have to be from the same manufacturer? So the rollout strategy currently, I think, will continue where any vaccine that is authorized by the FDA will become available across the country, you know, in every state and D.C. Um, Right now, I, the, everything we know about the science, yes, we, stick, we need to stick with the same um, manufacturer. So if you get the Pfizer vaccine first dose, you need to get the Pfizer vaccine second dose. Um, in the U.S., we're not doing any mixing and matching. We just don't have the data to show that that would work. There are some small differences between the vaccines, even that use the same technology, that we just don't know if it would work. And even, you know, the timing of that second dose is different between um, the two that are authorized now. So for now, yes, you want to stick with the same, um, the same manufacturer. And we had um, talked about those three manufacturers. Um, are you aware of any other companies that are seeking approval for vaccinations? 
Yep. So in addition to the three, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson Johnson, AstraZeneca, um, which is already authorized in the UK and in India and some other places, is coming down the pike in the US. They had a um, kind of a blip in their clinical trial. They just slowed things down. So they, right now, it looks like maybe April for authorization. So that would be four. There are honestly dozens being developed by companies of all different, you know, sizes and using different types of technology. But it looks like by spring, at least, um, we're in good shape to have these four authorized. And I, I will say there are a few others that outside of the U.S. Um, are seeking approval um, within their own country. So Dr. Bumpus is correct. We'll likely have four by the spring for the United States. Um, but in case of our listeners hear about, oh, India got uh, this other vaccine. Um, for some of the countries with their own pharmaceutical companies, um, they were trying to seek out approval uh, there individually. So um, uh, so that's it. In, in case you hear of a different version, it's, it's usually uh, country-specific and um, a country-made. So India has a, another vaccine I think they recently approved with um, not as much robust data, uh, I, I thought, when I reviewed it, but... Here in the U.S., the four that Dr. Bumpus emphasized, those are likely by spring we'll have. Mm-hmm. Yes, China has their um, one that was developed by a company there, too, that they have that they've reported 78% efficacy, so they're using it. But as I mentioned, the AstraZeneca, even though here it'll probably authorize in April, you will, you know, we'll be getting data across the world from it's approved in other places. Um, and so, you know, you'll probably see that as you read. Thank you. So, um, Dr. Bumpus or Dr. G, um, would either of you be comfortable in providing our audience with kind of um, some basic information that the Governor Hogan has expressed as far as the rollout? There's a lot of questions about when folks would be eligible, um, defining essential um, uh, people to get the vaccine. Uh, Could you provide, uh, to the best of your knowledge, when these vaccines might be available to the public and how they would be distributed? If you're able to tackle that question, I'm yeah, not sure. No, uh, and to some extent, I, th- I think we're still learning in real time. And uh, I'll, I'll share this. You know, one of the um, uh, challenges that I, I feel like we have faced in the community, um, just the other day I went and um, I gave a brief talk at one of the congregations in Baltimore City in a physically distant manner with a face mask on, um, where they were commenting on Florida and Texas um, distributing it much, uh, vaccines much differently, right? Uh, there it sounds like you could just call up and go and wait in line for hours to get it, regardless of where you may fall um, in the line. I think it's for the older individuals. So right off the bat, I do want to say the state by state, there isn't a uniform rollout. So every state is kind of up to its own to kind of uh, identify who to best distribute it to. Here in Maryland, I know Group 1A and 1B have all been healthcare professionals and nursing home residents, and it sounds like Group 2 is about to be approved per um, a few uh, emails and um, meetings that we've been having. Uh, but the only challenge I have with that is I'm not sure who falls specifically into Group 2. Dr. Pumpus, if you have insight, you're welcome to, to uh, share in. But I've, I've had some mixed insight into who falls into that. So. What I would say, Kimberly, to that question is gladly to get back and make sure our listeners stay up to date with that via our listserv, if not our phone calls um, next week. Um, so right now, I don't have a good sense of who falls into the second group. And more importantly, not a good sense of how the rollout will happen. Sounds like a lot of emphasis is being put on um, like a Walgreens or CVS, um, though that in of itself probably is not going to be 
enough to get um, these shots into arms. I know here in the city, um, Mayor Scott has discussed um, with the convention center to potentially be a, a place. Um, but one thing I do want to emphasize is, you know, we have, uh, we have during this pandemic, you know, getting the resources for the vaccine comes at the, uh, to some extent with competition of having enough resources for testing as well. So um, we are, I know everyone is doing their best to try to do this as efficiently as possible. Um, and kind of part of this feels like you're, you're building the plane and flying it at the same time. So I apologize. But um, as Kimberly and I find out more, or if we hear more from Dr. Bumpus, um, we'll continue sharing that. But just to summarize what I said, not, no uniform policy from state to state. So every state kind of is coming up with their own plan, hopefully in accordance with the CDC guidelines. Uh, who the next group is, um, group two, we'll get some more clarity of what that means and how that they plan to distribute them. Dr. Bumpus, is there anything you wanted to add? I apologize if, uh, you, if you have more, by all means, please share. No, nope, I think you're right. <laughs> it's evolving. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I'm kind of reviewing a lot of these questions, and uh, a lot of them have to do about the current timeline. So um, just to kind of reiterate what Dr. G said, that we will continue to do our best um, to keep you updated. Um, I will certainly send you links to... Um, you know, Maryland's uh, website and some local resources for you to keep updated. Um, is there anything else, Dr. Bumpus or Dr. G, that you wanted to add to share with our listeners? I'll, I'll let Dr. Bumpus have the last word, and I think she should, um, because you've said so much profound things during this call, um, you know, and, and especially with the recognition of um, uh, how the uh, trials for Pfizer and Moderna did in recruiting patients who this virus seemed to impact, right? I mean, we, we've all heard this uh, uh, ethical reckoning that we've had with the COVID-19 related disparities. And so you wanted to make sure that the vaccine enrolled people that went in communities that were ravaged by it. And so I, I really loved uh, Dr. Bumpus's emphasis that, you know, 10% um, black patients for both Pfizer and Moderna in addition to quite a bit of uh, Latinx, 26% uh, in Pfizer, and 20% in uh, Moderna. Uh, hopefully I got those numbers right. I apologize, Dr. Pumpus. But for the community members listening, I, I think that's a really important point to drive home because patients were recruited that look like the communities that were ravaged. And so moving forward, I, I think that's one of the, the variables to take stock in to, to continue earning trust towards this scientific outcome that we have that could potentially end the pandemic for us, but at the same time, continue asking those amazing questions. You know, even if we don't have answers, oftentimes we don't, we will discuss, you know, what is being planned to move forward. And finally, so many of your questions about the logistics of the rollout of the vaccines, Kimberly and I, I promise you, we are doing our homework over time to get those answers to you all, because, again, the, the analogy, while it may be good or bad, we, uh, it just seems like with the pandemic, many um, whether it's hospitals or government officials or even grocery stores, uh, we're, we're all kind of building a plane and flying it at the same time as we figure out what to do. But Dr. Bumpus, please, by all means, my friends, like you deserve the last word. You have easily been one of our best guests uh, on these calls. So any closing words to the community leaders listening? Thanks. So I think that was a great summary. What I'll say is, um, you know, a brand new technology was used for these vaccines, but it's a technology that's really been decades in the making. 
Um, and it's a great thing. I mean, the idea that these vaccines are 95% effective when we were expecting maybe 70-something percent, I think is something um, to really be excited about and is really just a big win for science. And in addition, the inclusivity in these trials, I mean, really, this was a high level of inclusion and diversity, um, you know, as far as participation of um, black people in the studies. I mean, there were many HBCUs that were sites for these studies, for instance. There were many um, black scientists and physicians involved, in addition, of course, to the you know, participants who enrolled in the study and allowed us to be able to see um, how well these vaccines work. So I think that this is something that's been very, very well considered. It's been, you know, looked at in the populations that are the hardest hit, as Dr. G mentioned. We see that the efficacy is just as strong in those folks that we don't see there are any toxicities or side effects difference in those folks. The due diligence has really been done to show the safety here in, you know, everybody essentially. And um, I just think that it's hopefully, you know, what we'll do moving forward with other vaccines, but that this is something that we should all, I think, feel good about and um, feel confident and also um, just, I think, feel a lot of hope that we have these really effective vaccines and, you know, there's certainly light um, at the end of the tunnel. Thank you, Dr. G, and thank you, Dr. Pompas. This has been, um, again, amazing conversation. I really appreciate both of you and um, sharing all this information with our community. And I, I wanted to remind everyone to please continue to join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Um, as we try to do our best to keep you updated as well as sharing information um, through their emails. Um, so before I turn this call over to Reverend Teague for our closing thoughts and prayer, um, please do mark your calendar for a next call on Friday, January 15th at 11 a.m. And also, we will continue our Monday calls, our community partners calls, to um, keep people posted on other things that are important to us, um, different um, health conditions, things that we should always be mindful of on the first and third Mondays of every month um, at uh, 5 p.m., though there is none on the 18th due to the MLK holiday. So um, again, please join us next Friday at 11 a.m. And now for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Teague will offer closing thoughts and a prayer. Reverend Teague? Hi, Kimberly. This is Paula. You can hear me okay? Yes, thank you. Great. Well, I'm really, I'm very glad to be with you all this morning, and I hope each one of you is experiencing health and wellness in your body and your soul. And um, as I was thinking about our prayer for this morning, I, I was really going in one direction until we um, all experienced the insurrection on Wednesday. It was quite disturbing to watch all of that. I'm sure all of you had some similar feelings, and um, both for its challenge to the fabric of our governance, but also for the flagrant white supremacy. And so I found a prayer that was very meaningful to me, um, and I want to share it with you. It's from Reverend Micah Busey from the Judson Memorial Church in New York City. And the prayer really landed for me in a way that was uh, both hopeful and prophetic, and I hope that you will receive it in a similar way. So let us pray. May we pause to take a hard, honest look at ourselves. May we not waste our time claiming that what we are witnessing is not who we are. 
Instead, may we collectively wonder what must be done if what we're witnessing truly is who we are. May we loudly name and negate the unchecked white supremacy and toxic masculinity that has been allowed to fester and rule for centuries. May we stop hemming and hawing about reaching across differences for a false unity. May we instead pour our energy into creating undeniable hope for the most oppressed among us in the face of this fast cynicism. May we recommit today to not denying the parts that we have played in the problems, but to reclaiming the parts we can play in the solutions with newly humble and vulnerable vigor. God of many names, God of hope and empowerment, hear our prayer. Amen. Thank you, Reverend T. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Have a great weekend. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.